Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to Weekly Weights. It's episode 90. I'm Will and with me is Alex. Hello. And we said on our social media this week that we'd start reading out some reviews if we got them. We didn't get any this week, but we went back through our iTunes and realized there were a couple that slipped through the cracks. So firstly, I've got the incredibly vanilla review by Gucci Gang 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 um, from November. They just said, great podcast, guys, keep it up. No punctuation. Five stars, though. I appreciate that. Alex, what's the one that you found? So this is from the 18th of June, 2019. So it's funny that we said we haven't got any reviews in a while. We actually haven't even checked. But also we haven't got enough. So if you're listening to this, give us a review. All right. So he who lifts wins says, These blokes clearly have lots of good ideas and knowledge on how to get weak people stronger. Add to that some fun Aussie banter and you've got yourself a podcast that usually contains some lifting related knowledge bombs as well as some giggle worthy moments. For a fun drinking game, have a shot every time Will asks, do you agree, Alex? Or words to that effect. Thanks for your effort, fellas. It's good to hear a uniquely Australian perspective on all this stuff. That was a nice review. That was nice. Would you agree with that? Take a shot. Ha-ha. Yeah, everybody take a shot. Especially Aaron or Double Aaron or whatever his name is. No, he or, lives wins. Oh, was that it? Yeah. Okay. All right. So today is a and a episode. Um, Do you have a funny pun this time? What I was is trying this? To is think this of number one. four? Yeah, cuatro at day. Cuatro being Spanish for question or something. <laughs> All right, I haven't thought of a funny pun. Actually, I'd say I'm underprepared for this one, but it's a Q&A episode. We actually got a surprising number of pretty good questions, so maybe we'll just chew through them top to bottom, Alex, and see how we do. Sweet. The first one that I've seen is a very serious and important question by underscore Josh Christie on Instagram. And he asks, who would win in a 100-meter sprint? You, that's Alex, or Will? And I'm going to respond. This wouldn't even be close. If you say you, I'm like, I'm uh, out. Alex would absolutely shit it in. <laughs> you are so slow. <laughs> I'm slow as a wet week and just so unexplosive in every respect. Alex would dominate me. I'm probably a bit better now than I used to be, and you're probably a bit worse than you used to be, but you'd still wallop me, surely. Yeah, I've put on 15 kilos since my peak of sprinting and you've lost probably 25, but I would still beat you. Yeah, no, I would lose that one, absolutely. The only running race that I've ever won that I can remember was when I was in year six, I think, at school. They did a running race for all the kids who'd never made the finals of a running race in the whole of prep school, and I was in that. Ask yourself this, Will. Were you the king of the retards or the retarded king? I think you're disrespecting retards by asking that question. <laughs> All right. Next question. Which, which one is it? It's definitely the retarded king. All right. Next question. Um, Jackson Lifts, who doesn't have a profile picture on Instagram. Interesting. Um, Jackson underscore Lifts says, what ages were both of you for your first comp? What to do and not to do for first timers? I'm going to answer this backwards first. What to do and not to do for first timers would be all the stuff that we covered in our specific episodes talking exactly about that. Um, I'm just going to look up which episode that is so that yeah. you can go back and look at it. But anyway, we 
we did discuss that in depth. A very quick summary of some of the things that Alex and I said for that were to make sure that you familiarized yourself with the rules and the commands and have some practice doing it. More or less train into the competition following a structured program, ideally one from a coach, but if not, at least one that has a track record of success. Um, go in with a very conservative meat plan. So opening with stuff that you're extremely comfortable you could lift for you know five or more. And most of all, just have fun. Don't do anything drastic or wild in your first competition. That would be a really good general place to start. Do I miss anything else really obvious that we said? Um, the only really obvious thing would be make sure you know the rules. Of oh, I whatever. said that too. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay, I wasn't listening. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can go back and listen to that full episode uh, if you scroll back to episode 37. 37? So that's from 2018. Goodness me. Jeez, we are, we are experienced. Yeah, having said that, my first competition was in 2019. Not really, that'd be pretty funny. <laughs> that, Your first good one, maybe? <laughs> not even. Um, that would be honestly like the the most fitness industry thing of all times. Like, you know how fitness industry people like position themselves as life coaches when they're like 21 and still live with their parents? Well, that would be like the powerlifting equivalent of that. Like telling people what to do as a first time powerlifter having not competed, which absolutely happens on the internet forums of the world. Yeah, you remember when I got the shits with that a few uh, months ago? That was my social media gripe. Oh, First time yes, competitors yeah, offering yeah. coaching on Instagram? Yeah, I do remember that. Um, anyway, the When f- was your first comp and how old were you, Will? Uh, you yours have been 2013, right? It was 2013, which would have made... it was I was 20 years old because it was right at the start of 2013. Um, yeah, so 20 years old. You? What was your total? Bad. What weight class? 83, and I've actually got this on an Excel spreadsheet now. I think it was something like 165, 95, 215 for like, what's that? That's 510? No, it's like 465 or something really bad. Um, But it was that. It was pretty bad, whatever I did. 460 would be. 460? That sounds right. I'm going to look it up because it's on open powerlifting, so it's pretty funny. Uh, Mine was December 2014. Okay. And I did 507.5 at 74. Okay, that's considerably better than my first comp, but you did have pretty big head start here we go um february 2013 southwest strength challenge i was 20.5 years old weighed 81.1 kilos 165 95 215 for 475 that is dreadful all right shall we go on to another question (laughs) where was your first comp um that was that was in norellan in sydney is that so you still exist no so the gym that that was at was um was the old hydrofit gym so HydroFit still exists, but they've moved premises. Right. All right. Question three was, what's your... This is actually an interesting question because it's laid in assumption. It's by Phantom Legions, and it looks like a she from the picture. She asks, what's your go-to variation of each of the big three to improve overall technique? Alex. Um, that is hard. That's a hard one to just choose one. But I think if I only had to choose one... It would just be whatever the main lift is. Yeah, that was more or less going to be my um, answer as well. Go but I on. think for probably eliciting the fastest um, technique change, for the squat and the bench press would be doing tempo work. And for the deadlift, probably probably like slow eccentric touch and goes. That would, that would be what I would lean to for like a beginner trying to get a lot more proficient very quickly. But in general, 
the actual competition variation is the best variation to improve the competition variation. Yeah, um, I agree entirely with that. I I think you're sort of missing the point if the idea is to teach somebody a skill by doing another skill. However, conceptually, there's some there's some truth to that. Um, there's some merit to that premise conceptually and we've spoken about this in depth in other episodes and i've written an article about it but um one of the sort of i guess the prevailing theory in motor learning is that the like motor skills or movement patterns and stuff emerge as a result of us trying to achieve a certain objective um but bounded by constraints so in the case of squatting you know you know you have a bar on your back and you're told you have to sit down so that your hips go past your knees and stand back up, right? Um, that's broadly describing what squatting is. But the way in which we can teach people to do that in a more effective way is draw their attention to aspects of their motor strategy that are inefficient or draw their attention to certain aspects of what they're doing generally. So doing things like tempo work is really good because it lets people sense deviations in their balance or in their positioning or where they feel themselves starting to tip over and correct it because it slows you down. Um, But in the same way, doing things like squatting to a box uses that environmental cue of having something behind you to teach you to let your hips sit back. You know, any number of things like that, squatting with a band around your knees teaches you to maintain some pressure pushing out against the band with your knees. You can modify movements in a targeted fashion to, to elicit technical improvement, but I don't necessarily think that that needs to be done on a universal basis. What you do is you get somebody, you try and teach them the movement, and all you do is just remove the constraints that are basically guiding them towards the perfect movement pattern as they start to self-discover what their good movement should be. And so from a broad brush perspective, if you can just get better at squatting by squatting, like if that's enough to get you doing something that resembles a pretty good squatting movement pattern and then over time you're going to just sort of slowly regress towards what's most efficient for you anyway, then squatting's enough. And if you can't do that or you need some special help, then you know that's when things like, yeah, tempos, boxes, all that stuff, you know, even a goblet squat might be handy just to sort of get you doing the movement more correctly before you put them back towards the competition lift. Make sense? Yeah, so I think... That, what you've just said, applies really well to beginners. Mm. Then once we sort of progress away from the beginner stage and into the intermediate stage, that's kind of when I see lifters making similar mistakes um, all the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, Whereas in the beginner phase, you know, you might make every mistake under the sun and you don't really know what rep's coming next. And when you get into that intermediate stage, we kind of develop our own technique which will have some weaknesses. And then once we've figured out what they are, then we can figure out a method to go about fixing them. But that's going to be very individual to the lifter. And there's going to be a, a million ways we can attack it, whether we're using pauses, whether we're using different bars, whether we're using different tempos, whether we're using whatever additional range of motion, whether we're just hitting target muscles a different way or whatever the case is, that's going to be a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I think maybe, like this is a thought bubble, but maybe a way of thinking about it is almost in the case of beginners, you can pick variations to be like mistake limiting. So if you have somebody who has no idea how to squat down and up and you give them a kettlebell and say, hold this in front of you and do a goblet squat, chances are it's going to make their squat pattern look better than it does the first time you put a bar on their back in a low bar position. And then as you get towards that more intermediate phase where like Alex said, there's more consistent technical errors or there's like predictable technical inefficiencies 
then you move from mistake limiting variations to almost like mistake highlighting variations where it it draws their attention to something that feels wrong or inefficient about what they're doing so you know good examples like alex said are poor squats or pin squats or safety bar squats and stuff that really highlight to you like hey my balance here isn't so good or hey my tightness isn't so good or whatever it happens to be and then they slowly start to correct it because it feels bad and there's that extra attention to that error um, from their part and then hopefully that translates to improved competition lift as well yeah yeah i think that's a pretty good answer you want to introduce the next question? All right, from Bridget Pugh fan page. What is your biggest fear? Can I just say that when I see an account that says something, something fan page, I presume that it's not real, like they're not actually following you, wanting your powerlifting content. And every time I do one of these Q and A things, I get people saying like follow for follow, or like, or just giving me like a shitty question, or saying like, hey, sick page. So when I saw that name, I very much expected a question that wasn't legit. If they are listening, hi. <laughs> What's my biggest fear? I don't know. Um, probably not that I'm inadequate. Probably that I'm powerful beyond measure. <laughs> is that light, not our darkness that most frightens us? <laughs> is That's from Coach Carter, isn't it? It is, but that's a famous quote from I don't know who. Right. Um, probably, uh, is it Nelson Mandela? Probably. Honestly, there's or no Martin reason. Or King or yeah. Malcolm X or someone. <laughs> Malcolm X is like a You've got like... Yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, Some character that Denzel played. <laughs> what's my biggest fear? Um, I reckon there's like a couple of different ways that you can think about fear. There's fears that are like genuine... Genuine like existential anxiety fears. You know, like will I be loved? Like, will I die of feeling like my life's unfulfilled? I think those are really meaningful and significant because you can never entirely get away from them. You can only do your best. And then there's just like visceral fears. Like, I'm really scared of bears. Bears are scary as fuck. I would hate to be in the woods and just know there was a bear after me. Is that why you always run away from Nick Walters? <laughs> yeah, he's terrifying, the big bear. <laughs> um, so... So in terms of what's my like deepest existential fear, um, probably that nobody else will realize how good I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what's my what's my biggest visceral fear? Oh, really hard to say. Um, either bears or sharks. They're both scary. But I'm very happily swim in the ocean. So sharks can't bother me that much, and there's no bears around here, so they don't really bother me unduly either. I don't know, Alex. Uh, biggest fear, probably failure. Yeah. Just in a general sense. Yep. Um. Visceral fear, probably performing in front of like an audience. Really. M- yeah, my- not not in a sport context, more in like a. I don't know, when I was in school, like, doing a music performance or something like that. Really? That's interesting. I don't relate to that at all. Obviously, like, I play music live a bit. I get nervous, but that doesn't strike me as something... This is something I've never quite understood about stage fright generally, is it's, like... It makes sense when there's a chance that you're going to make yourself look like a complete dickhead. Like, were I to be running for, you know, Prime Minister of Australia or something... 
I would understand why I would have stage fright because there's genuinely a lot riding on the things that I were to say. But when it's playing trumpet for year five for recital, I don't think anyone cares, Alex. Oh, yeah, I agree. Except when you're in that situation, it's like, well, it can be terrifying. Yeah. It's pretty common, pretty common fear. It is a common fear. Like public speaking or like being scared of heights, which I used to be scared of heights. And then I went skydiving. That cute with you? Yeah, it was That's sick. very drastic. It was so good. Therapies. Skydiving is great. All right, next question. Um, okay, our guest from the other week, Dan Godiasi, physio from Melbourne Strength Culture, says, any big paradigm shifts in your profession the last two to three years, either personally or things you've seen in the industry? Um, Alex, what do you reckon? Um... In the powerlifting industry? Yeah. Um, I think there's been a lot better focus on um, improving qualities that improve the powerlifter as a whole rather than just doing squat bench and deadlift all the time. So stuff like improving body composition and you know being healthier in general and improving work capacity and those kind of things. I feel like that's sort of something that's shifted a lot since... I came into powerlifting. I know that when I came into powerlifting, it was very much like, if you want to be better at squats, do squats year-round, comp squats year-round, comp bench year-round, comp deadlifts year-round. And like low rep ranges and that kind of stuff. And I feel like there's definitely been a shift away from that. Um, Well, maybe not a shift away from that, but like maybe a better focus on things that are not so obviously quote-unquote powerlifting. I think um, I have a couple of thoughts with regards to this question. Um, firstly, I think the way, definitely the way the internet works and certainly to a degree the way fitness works on the internet is that we sort of exist in echo chambers. And so I think because of that, you get a whole lot of confirmation of things that you're already doing in your own practice or beliefs you already hold. And I've definitely noticed the things Alex said, like, you know, a swing away from just a focus on hyperspecificity, a swing towards holistically developing powerlifters as athletes. I've noticed a lot more coaches taking care to develop, like, psychological skills in their athletes or, like, developing self-efficacy. There's a move towards flexibility and auto-regulation in training programs. Um, Lots of things like that, all of which I think are really good. Um, but I also think that the fact that I'm noticing that is partly because I look for sources of information for myself that are going to give me the tools and information to apply in my own practice with the things I'm already thinking, you know? Yeah, and I think certainly, that's interesting. Well, like if I go on, I always talk about Elite FTS because that was the website that I first started reading a lot about powerlifting on. And I still probably once or twice a week go on Elite FTS and look at the articles and plenty of them are really good. So this isn't like a this isn't a dig at elite FTS necessarily. But but if I go on there on any given day, there'll still be a bunch of articles Alex say that are um, are promoting doing you know the West Side method in the most vanilla way for raw lifting, or or articles that are promoting say getting like getting fat and not giving a shit about your body composition for powerlifting strength and you know like articles that advocate really hard percentage-based training 
or that neglect the development of movement capacities outside of powerlifting. So you, you're kind of saying like wherever you go in the internet, you can find what you want to find. Yeah, absolutely. And again, when I say it's not a dig on elite FTS, there's also articles going through there talking about the benefits of autoregulation and about like movement variability and all that stuff too. But uh, yeah, I think were my biases different, exactly like you said, I'd be finding more information that conformed with them. Um, but yeah, those are the trends Alex said and the ones that I listed initially. They're the ones that I'm seeing a lot in the past few years among coaches that I consider to be good and successful coaches. And they're probably the ones that I think we'll continue to see. What will be interesting will be if like a pendulum things swing almost too far away from say developing skill in the power lifts um, towards developing more general athletic qualities and in some ways I think that that's something that that I did in a little bit of my own training and my own clients training to a degree where I've now started to think like after doing some developmental work more prolonged strength phases and more more prolonged exposure to the competition lifts and things to just develop strength in them is really important I can see the danger in coaches being like, nah, fuck it, just basically train for bodybuilding and then do a powerlifting peak for six weeks or something at the end of it. That's probably not optimal. So if that happens in the next few years, then we'll know the pendulum swung too far. But for now, I think the balance is really good for a lot of people with that stuff. Yeah, I think basically the, the reason for all of these sort of broader perspective things coming into powerlifting is because I think there are obviously more people doing powerlifting, more coaches coming into powerlifting who want to coach powerlifters who are coming in with a different perspective on things. Yeah. And, and also, I think people are also seeking out different perspectives and trying to learn from new places that maybe that they may be able to take things from and bring back into powerlifting. Yeah. I think what you said is really true. And it's not just that people are looking for other perspectives. It's that because powerlifting itself is like powerlifting is a pretty simple sport you can train to get better at it a lot of ways and because of that simplicity and the multiple avenues for getting better that are in it and because most people participate in powerlifting on a participational basis people are coming in and saying well what are the ways i like to train and what are the things i find valuable about training and how can i shape my powerlifting training around that rather than approaching it from like i'm going to squat bench and deadlift and then shape my training to only that only you know what i mean yeah and perhaps that's for the better in some ways um next question all right, from the aforementioned bear, Nikki Walt. What has been your experience, if any, with DUP training? Pros, cons, insights. So Nick is a fellow coach at The Process, is that correct? Yes. And you can tell he's an avid fan of the show because he obviously hasn't listened. We've spoken about this a bit. Um, <laughs> do you reckon? Surely he listens. He does listen. He's okay. been on the show. Yeah, true. Um, I enjoyed that episode. So... DUP, we've spoken about this before, um, jokes and jabs aside, we have spoken about it before. So in research, DUP involves training, so daily undulating periodization, involves training for multiple motor qualities in succession across a week. And so in research, oftentimes what you'll see is people doing like, you know, a muscle endurance day. So doing like three sets of 15, all near failure, short rests a power day so like you know five sets of two or three at like 60 percent and a strength day like whatever it is four sets of five at 85 percent or close to failure or something as well and they'll do all that within the same week um and so people's conceptualization of dup is often 
is often that it must resemble that. It must involve training for multiple qualities within a week. Um, people like Mike Zerdos have done much more much more applied to powerlifting style DUP research, which has deviated a bit from that. And in reality, what you see in people who use DUP effectively in powerlifting programming is that they have days that are harder and easier. They have days that are higher and lower volume and higher and lower intensity. And so there is that undulation across the week. There's changes in training stress and the nature of the training stress, but you're not necessarily having a day that's really dedicated high rep, hypertrophy or muscle endurance training adjacent to a day that's really low rep strength training. What you tend to see is a block of emphasis that might still broadly be on strength, but one day that's higher volume and one day that's higher intensity and maybe a day that's just generally easier to facilitate recovery. Now, having given those conceptual bounds for DUP, um, what are my experiences with it? I think pretty much every program that I've written for myself or my clients and or had written for me by a coach in the past four to five years has incorporated some elements of DUP. It's had some degree of undulation between hard or easy days. And for the most part, I think to do maximally effective powerlifting training, unless you're only training the lifts once a week, there has to be some degree of undulation. So I think in general, it's really, really good if you can get that concept of saying like that you don't need to have uniformity in training stress across the week and that maybe some variation is good, then DUP is good. Yes, I agree with that. I think what he means more specifically is like using only the comp variation three times a week with different loading strategies and volumes across the week that would resemble more closely what the research that you um, alluded to before would suggest. Something that I followed in the past is like I did 10s on one day, 5s on another day and doubles like for quote-unquote speed work on another day, mm-hmm. which I think is probably more what he's referring to. Right. Well, I mean, if you take that, like if you take that narrow definition of what DUP is, it can work, sure. I don't think it's necessarily the optimal way to arrange training, um, but it can work. It's just that if you actually do a really hard volume stimulus on one day um, and you come in to do hard strength training work later in the week, there is a chance that there will be interference between those two things. Um, there will be a chance that your strength performance will be suppressed and the order of the workouts matters. That's one thing that Mike Zerdos did investigate as well is whether place whether going hypertrophy strength power, which would be the traditional phases in a program um, written for sports development or hypertrophy power strength makes more sense in a powerlifting context. Sorry, my dog is in the room and he's just having an absolute wobbly. Um, yeah, I think doing only the three lifts three times a week with varying rep schemes presents lots of problems and it's not just it's not just because of DUP per se like there's just a lot of things that you could probably do to improve your powerlifting development by incorporating some more variety by having a little bit more focus in your phases things like that that doesn't exclude using DUP principles but using a really hardline DUP probably not the best thing ever yeah so like like you mentioned using some variability between loading sessions is important but we want there to be more variability than just load percentage and reps like we want to use different exercises or we want to use like we want an easy or a light day we want moderate day whatever Mm. versus just um just manipulating the comp lift 
Um, but I have done a D like a traditional DUP, like what Nick's asking about um, for, I think I did it for about four months and I saw great progress. I literally did four exercises for four months. I did squat, bench, deadlift, and a chest board row. This is the only exercise I did. Goodness me. And like, yeah, like your reaction, basically, it was boring, but it worked fine. Look, I think just to add some balance to my comments before and in light of what you just said, how much training variety you actually need to get pretty close to the most strength or muscle you could ever develop is probably not that much. I do think, but it's a bit like when I say how important is periodization, probably not as important as we say, but it does have a lot of practical benefits and you you alluded to a couple of them. You can make days easier by using variations that limit load. You can highlight technical inefficiencies. You can potentially reduce the risk of overuse injuries. You can make training more fun and fresh and spur people on to actually engage with it for longer by incorporating variety. That doesn't necessarily mean it's an absolute necessity to do more than, say, four things at once. And maybe in the short term, you did it for, what, five months? Is that what four you Four months, yeah. Four months. Maybe in the short term, you could get away with, with a lot of specificity for four months. But doing just that, like, it takes a pretty special type of person to say, I'm only going to do a few things for, like, four years. Um, we're going to take a very quick break, and we'll be right back with the next few questions. <laughs> weekly weights. Welcome back. It's Weekly Weights. It's episode 90. Um, we had to take a quick break and it, it wasn't by choice was it Alex nah Digby was going mental and then started scratching the door yeah my dog was being a naughty boy he'd been scratching against my bed he'd been doing zoomies around the room and trying to bite Alex's hand and then he started pouring at the door and we said righto if you don't want in you're out because that's our policy at Weekly Weights isn't it if you're not in you're out <laughs> All right. you're not first you're last um, did that really cut off much of our answer to Walt or do you reckon we've more or less covered it um i think okay let's summarize i think dup can be great for the short term i think we can use modified versions of dup during competition prep um so long as we bring the reps down enough on those hypertrophy days um i think they are very boring and if someone can stick to it it can be fine but not for a long period of time you know how at school when like one of the rules of debating and writing an essay was when you do in summary, you're not allowed to introduce new points in the summary because it's not technically in summary. You introduce like three new points. One new point. Anyway, I agree broadly with everything you had to say. And my summary of what I said is you can take the principles and apply them to any program and you probably should. It doesn't have to be a hardline DUP for you to get some of the benefits of it. Um, all right, next question. Postman Potts. Postman Potts submitted... That's Aiden Potts. Submitted a number of questions, but not all of them are the same. Or sorry, not all of them are separate questions. Some of them are continued. Um, okay. Let's start with which which one is the one that says, or do you have to always keep addressing it? That's the stability one. Okay, start with the other one then. Okay, well, there's six. Six. Let's start with the stability one. Okay. Is stability in powerlifting something you achieve and maintain forever or do we have to always keep addressing it? I presume what he means is not just like technical stability as in like your I think, technique looks I think the same. he means technical stability. Well, te- okay, sorry. Let me, let me give some operational definitions so when I say things, it makes sense. When I say technical stability, 
I mean that your technique itself is consistent. Like it is stable in the sense that when you do a squat, your next squat is going to look roughly like Does that squat. Does stability mean we're stable, Will? Hmm? Thank you, Alex. But it's important to have operational <laughs> definitions, so I'm going to continue. Right? So technical stability to me, your technique is repeatable and consistent. Then there's stability in the sense of like your ability to resist deviations, you know, posturally or whatever while you're squatting. So, so I think the the manner he's asking that question is like your ability to resist deviations. So, do you have core stability? Do you have lateral stability through your hips? Yeah, that's what I think he means. Do we have stability in our technique such that it is our technique becomes stable? No, you weren't listening to my operational definitions, Alex. (laughs) I'm saying they're separate things. So I I know that, and I agree with you. But I'm saying having stability in movement means we have stability in technique. They're, in, well, they're in related. That way, they're, that way, they're linked. Yeah, they're related. That's what sure. I think. That's what he means. Okay. The well, broad concept of being stable and then they're therefore consistent. Yeah. I, well, in the respect that they're related, they're related for sure. Um, I'll try and I'll try and answer both and draw them together and then see if Alex agrees with what I have to say. So, so technical stability, um, like as in having a consistent and replicable technique. The longer your powerlifting journey goes on, the more likely it's going to be that you're going to have consistent and replicable technique. That doesn't necessarily mean your technique won't change over time as your leverages and relative strength and stuff do, but you'll probably just see changes on a more gradual basis. And particularly once you get into that more intermediate and like possibly advanced stage, when you are making changes, it's going to be on the basis of yeah, very subtle changes in how strong you are in certain movement points and maybe very slight technical discoveries as opposed to just big aha moments. So in that respect, I don't think you need to consciously try and entrain technical stability in people who know how to squat. And something that Matt Bartholomew, our friend, has said a number of times is like, the better you know how to do the power lifts, the better you know a skill, the longer you can spend away from them and the shorter your your lag time will be when you go to pick them up again. And so he's a, he's a very, very apt powerlifter in all three lifts, but he's a very good squatter. And he can spend, you know, six months at a time training pretty much, you know, some high bar squats and lots of pendulum squats and things. Then within four to six weeks of him reintroducing his comp squat, he feels great again, right, Alex? So to some degree, you don't need to invest as much effort in just learning how to do the basics once you've already nailed the basics. That makes sense, and powerlifting's not that hard. Um, as far as stability goes in the sense of do you have the muscular strength and control to resist you know lateral flexion rotation and just being thrown all every which way through your torso and through your hips and you know are your shoulders stable and able to support a strong bench press can you create a strong upper back shelf stuff like that to the degree that those are motor learning skills you won't have to work on it as hard like once you've learned how to brace for instance you should pretty much be able to remember how to brace after not too long of going back to powerlifting or going back to the comp squats with heavy loads um, after a while. But just like anything else in your powerlifting career, I think you're also going to have to still do some targeted developmental work to get those things stronger, particularly when they start to become limiting. So for myself, I would say that I have reasonable stability through, through my trunk and hips and things. But not perfect and certainly not to the degree that I could just ignore it entirely and expect to continue to get better and better and better at squatting in the long term Um, but also not so much that it's literally inhibiting me squatting effectively at all whereas when you get an absolute beginner walking in the door they have no idea how to squat 
And like Alex said, they also don't just have the fundamental ability to control their limbs that's going to allow them to assume the positions they have to to squat. So in their instance, you've got to address both. You've got to get some degree of technical stability, so some degree of consistency in movement, and also create that that muscular and movement foundation around it that's going to support them doing that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think a good way of looking at it is similar to how we would look at technique. When we develop technique um, for a beginner, we'll spend quite a long time talking about the basics just like when we're teaching someone to resist resist forces and additional movement aka creating stability through a movement we need to highlight that a lot as we're starting out and then the better someone gets the better they will be at stabilizing positions so the less time we need to spend on it yeah so i think as you improve as a lifter if you are quite stable it shouldn't be something that you have to focus a lot on just like if your bench press technique is really consistent and you know you're ticking all the checkpoints for technique you probably don't need to spend too much time thinking about it rather than just doing it yeah and maybe just to tie this up a little bit more again you might think of an example so say potsy pretty competent squatter right squats well north of 250 at 85 correct very strong guy he might say he has some stability issues in his squat. He's not falling over when he squats, but like his weight might move forward and backwards on his foot a little bit and maybe his upper back tightness could do with some work. So at his level of development, what's stability work? It's not necessarily doing tempo work to squat. I don't know if he's doing tempo work right now, but it would probably be actually strengthening the relevant muscles. So doing some safety bar work or some high bar stuff, doing some beltless squatting, stuff like that, maybe a little bit of targeted cueing and he probably does some core work or something, right? Whereas when you get an absolute beginner who's falling around on their feet when they're squatting and stuff, they actually have to learn to squat. They don't need to develop the muscles to support them squatting. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a wrap. Um, next question. Shall we do another POTS one? Did he send in six? Well, five if you count the, the half one. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, he wrote, what are some subtle signs of doing too much slash not recovering enough? Well, the word subtle is kind of throwing me because I don't know if there are really very many subtle signs. I think um, it's quite clear if we're doing too much and we're not recovering enough. If your performance from week to week is decreasing more than expected, if you are feeling more tired than usual, if you are getting soreness that is higher than usual they're they're all pretty solid indications that uh, we are doing too much and we're not recovering enough what would you say are more subtle ones like what are the what are the ones that kind of fly under the radar a little bit yeah subtle probably um subtle probably makes it harder i would actually look if he says subtle i would look more towards maybe things like mood and motivation as well um so if you have somebody who's, say, consistently saying they're not sleeping that well, desire to train is low um, long-term, maybe they're starting to say their technique actually doesn't feel good when they come into train. It feels like they're struggling with general control. Oh, I just thought of a good one. Yeah, go on. Um, if there's a disconnect between how something feels and how something looks, I think it can mean that we're doing a little bit too much. So if you do a set of squats and it feels really hard and terrible and then you go back and watch it and it looks pretty normal looks pretty fine that's probably a pretty good sign that we're probably a little bit under recovered see i i can see situations in which that's true but i don't think it's universally true 
because you know say you're just not acclimated to training hard so i've got clients for instance who just have never done any hard sport they do a set of squats realistically looks like three or four reps in reserve they think it's absolutely terrible and incredibly hard and it moves so slow I don't think it's because they're doing too much. Those guys do like six sets of squats a week. I'm referring to someone who has a pretty good idea of how something feels mm-hmm. versus how it should look. Like if there's a like someone okay. who, someone who's genuinely experienced, like yourself, yourself or me. Mm. If we do a set of squats that we know feels terrible relative to the weight, and then we go back and look at it and it looks pretty much normal, mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty good sign. Yeah, in that instance, I'd be less cautious about using it. But even then, like, what you do with that information might make it a less than useful indicator. So, like, a time when that often happens to me, say, is peaking. Um, So, you know, my last couple of heavy squats, often in a peak, in the doing, they're just going to feel hard. Like, they're always going to feel bad because it's heavy and it's scary and, like, I'm in training and I am fatigued. Mm. All that stuff's really natural. And then when they look good on camera... To me, that's actually a good indicator. It's like, oh, actually, my training's going in the right direction because in spite of feeling bad, that moved well, and I can expect to feel better when I pull my training back. Like, bear in mind, I am saying my training will be pulled back imminently, so that shouldn't be a chronic state of affairs, but, like, that's not an indication that I think I've done too much in my peak up until that point. It may not be an indication that you're doing too much, but it is an indication that you are fatigued, like you just said. Yeah, oh, 100%. In that respect, yeah, agree. But I would just be cautious in using that as like a catch-all rule. Um, what were the ones I was saying? I was saying look for mood, um, mood and motivational disturbances. So yeah, do you feel grouchy all the time? Do you feel tired? Do you feel like you have poor motor control? Is your desire to train down? Um other ones appetite sleep so if you find yourself constantly hungry or rarely hungry um if you find yourself feeling lethargic or lots of brain fog if you're struggling to sleep um if you're finding less enjoyment or motivation to pursue other activities that are generally meaningful and enjoyable to you those might all be indications of fatigue or doing a little bit too much um but again, I wouldn't use any of them as like the aha thing. I'd be looking at them as part of a global assessment where you say, you know, the things Alex was saying, like, is my training performance going the way it ought to? You know, um, am I feeling fatigued? Am I performing poorly? And then do those contextual factors also also back me up? Oh, hey, you know, we've got some indicators of fatigue here. Those would be the things I would look for as subtle indicators, but I don't think that they can supersede the less subtle ones. And I also don't think that just because you're feeling too much fatigued means that we're not doing the right thing. I think if if we are progressing in the gym, regardless of how we feel, if the work that we're doing is indicating that we have improved, it, we may not be doing too much. We may be doing just the right amount. Mm. So I think the the relationship between fatigue and too much work, I don't necessarily think that it's linear. I think there's a sort of bandwidth of work to be done that is by nature going to be fatiguing, but also by nature going to facilitate progress. So I think we have to be a bit careful when we say like, just because someone feels fatigued and shit in the gym doesn't necessarily mean they're doing the wrong thing. No, and also, just like you said, there's that bandwidth of like productive work that you kind of just have to get into your like the rest of your life unless you're like a professional athlete is not likely to be so consistent 
that you can always attribute changes in how you feel in the gym to your training dose. You know, I like on the weekend, I had some drinks on Friday night, got sunburn on Saturday and Sunday. And then I trained on Monday and everything felt bad. My training dose was literally, it was the exact same session. Like I think one thing went up by half a point of RPE in the whole session. The rest was the same. Session felt harder. It's not because I was doing too much. It was literally just because I got sunburn on Sunday. You know? Yeah, you did too much life volume on the weekend. Yeah, way too much life volume. We've got to taper that off. And all, the other thing we need to know there is like, if we truly want to be good at powerlifting, there's going to be periods of time where we feel shit during training. There's going to be a period of time where we have to push ourselves a little bit harder than we might want to. Well, and hang on there. There's going to be periods of time where like, shit's going to be hard. So like, if you're too worried about doing hard work and feeling tired, then you probably pick the wrong sport. Yeah. Do an easier sport. Like, I don't know there's not much easier (laughs) darts 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 is a great sport if you want to not try that hard and sink a lot of piss um beer pong another potsy question might as well um he says what's something you've both learned this year already about technique or programming alex um something that we spoke to eric bodhorn about and also a little bit to mike to share about was um not tapering as hard into competition and it's something that I'm going to be trialing with the start of this year with some of my lifters is keeping volume in a little bit longer. Um, it's not necessarily something that I've learned, but it's something that I've sort of warmed to the idea of and something that I'll be trialing out, just keeping a little bit more volume in that taper week um, and not dropping things back too aggressively. Um, this isn't a really a this year thing. It's been a pretty... It's been something I've been consistently moving towards, but incorporating more order regulation generally in the training that I write for people. Um, because I do think that generally order regulated training lets me, like in a perfect world, order regulated training lets me achieve the things I want to achieve when I write a program better than me actually prescribing exactly what I want people to do in advance. But the world's imperfect, and for some people, order regulated approaches or fully order regulated ones don't work as well in application and it just impacts the way in which they approach training or the way in which they experience it or you know they don't make good decisions and they don't learn particularly from their mistakes so for those people maybe more concrete prescriptions are necessary and maybe it's a bit phase dependent but moving towards order regulation and part of um, probably one lesson that I've actually learned even in the past few weeks um, which has come from me starting working with Bryce is this is really subtle But when I prescribe accessory work, I've typically told people to do like say three sets of eight to 12 reps with two reps in reserve with the idea being that you get a weight and you do, you know, maybe 12 reps in set one and feel like you could have done 14, 10 in set two, feeling like you could have done 12 and nine in set three, feeling like you could have done 11. Um, But what I've realized tends to happen is people's performance just regresses to their expectations and that the the reps and reserve doesn't necessarily mean what you want it to in that instance. Whereas what Bryce wrote down for me, which is essentially achieving the same thing in a bit of my accessory work, was do, say, like three sets of eight at RPE six to eight. Um, and on paper, that's the same thing, right? You're, you're doing three sets of eight. You've got a band around how difficult it has to be and you pick a load to make sure you fall within it. But what that way of framing the challenge does, for me at least is make me actually think on a set-by-set basis how hard was what I just did and what should I do about it, which is the whole purpose of order regulation. 
And so, so that silly little realization, the fact that I've now found myself set by set going, was that the right level of difficulty? Will I adjust up? Will I adjust down? Will I stay here? Given that's what I want people to do in training, that's made me start thinking about how I actually frame my programming, like what language I use or exactly how I prescribe things, even when the prescription itself is the same, the way in which I communicate it and how that's going to impact people's approaches to it. So that's something I'm starting to try and think about and hopefully try and improve in my practice, but the exact hows I'll do it, I'm not sure. It's just something that I noticed. Alex, shall we go on? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of slowly warming to the idea of doing using more water regulation training as well. And I've already started a few people um, this year on running auto, auto regulation programs. Um, but again, it's going to be like a mix between between auto regulation and, and prescribed loads. Yeah, I have a lot of talks with um, friend of the show, three-peat guest, Jamie. Is he three or two? Jamie is three? Three, because he did the shoulder. Shoulder one, he assessment did. one, and then the recent one. Yeah. Um, yeah, three times. So I have a lot of chats with Jamie about training and about auto regulation and um, we more or less came to the agreement at one stage that sort of like as much auto regulation as is actually practical to use is good. But for some people that might be an entirely auto regulated program and for some people that might be nearly no auto regulation at all. Um, so I don't so just because like I said, I think that auto regulation on paper serves my purposes better doesn't mean that therefore i have to use it for every person um and i think that's that's where you're currently at with it as well i think one of the issues um particularly particularly as coaches we face is a lot of people hire us because like people hire a coach because they want the coach to make their training decisions because they presume the coach to have better knowledge and understanding than them themselves and all of that's actually pretty reasonable thinking but then that extends to them saying, well, fuck, like I just want the coach to tell me exactly what to lift in my session so that I can just go in and lift it, which again is not an invalid attitude to have. Um, but the coach can't always be there telling you and looking at your lifts and saying like, saying, you know, you should go up or you should go down. And when you can actually describe to people accurately the degree of training stress you want them to have and give them some guidelines so they can get roughly in the ballpark, what that should do is allow them to actually be more productive in training and it should empower them. So rather than them thinking that they're relying on you to give them the right training prescription, they start to develop a sense of what their own body feels like when they do things and what training should feel like when they're having good days, when they're having bad days and how they can shape their training to get them the things that they want. And so putting some power in the client's hands and actually asking them to get out in the deep water and swim a little bit, I think is really, really good for people's long-term development. It's just how and when you do it that might change person to person. Yeah, and I've written a few um, RPE approaches already to start this year and they all are very different. Mm. In some instances, they have a range for their top set and a range for the RPE that's within one point. And, you know, they, they pick that one top set and the back-offs are already pre-prescribed. Yeah. In another, in another scenario, you choose your top set and the back-offs are automatically calculated off percentage of the top set, um, et cetera. Yeah. And in every program that I've probably ever written, RPE is for accessory work. Yeah. So like even in those instances where I'm dictating load, there's still up elements of RPE. Well, a lot of my lifters have done as well, like a very slow transition where 
I always say to my lifters, when you send me a set on, like on Facebook or whatever, I want you to say like, this is week one, day one, this is the exercise, this is the set that I'm sending you, this is the load, and then a subjective rating of the set. So this was RPE 8 or like I had two reps in the tank or something. So with a lot of them, what I said is, you're already telling me this information all the time. Now, all I'm saying to you is, I intend this set to be this hard. If on the day it feels harder than that, this is what you do. And if on the day it feels easier than that, this is what you can do. So you're already doing the same thing you're doing to me. I'm just asking you to make a change in real time if you feel that it's warranted. And for a lot of people, realizing that they're already actually using those skills makes the leap to actually applying them not as hard. Shall we go on to the next question? Sure. All right. You find it. Elevator Uh, music. All right, from Max. Why does Weekly Weights not have its own Instagram account? Don't you fucking look at me. I source half our guests. (laughs) I speak half of our content and I... (laughs) Probably definitely more than half. No, I definitely speak more than half and I already edit it and I upload it and I write the blurb. You want a Weekly Weights Instagram? You can make one. Until then, I don't have enough pictures of myself on my own Instagram. Like, whenever I write an article, I have to deliberately go out and ask someone to take a picture of me so that I have something to post accompanying it because I just don't take pictures. Okay, how about this? If we get five messages from people on Instagram... Five is a low ball. Okay, ten. Okay. If we get ten messages, I'll make it a weekly way to Instagram account. Are you going to populate it with content? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't just make it and leave it blank. But, like... (laughs) If people genuinely think that this will add to the podcast, then I'll do it. All right. Well, let's hold him to that, guys. Ten messages to Alex. He didn't He didn't actually say whether they had to be from separate people. So, Mags, ten messages <laughs> ten to Alex tomorrow. Ten separate messages. <laughs> All right. Please. Another Mags question. What advice would you give to a lad who just put his foot in the door as a powerlifting coach? Um... Oh, Mags has changed her Instagram handle to Magsy. Um, what advice would you give to a lad who just get, put his foot in the door? What advice would I give to a lad generally? I'd say lose the drive. Take off fit. your TNs, bro. <laughs> yeah, Esha. Um, is that a very Aussie thing? Do people from any other com- country have like Esha Adlays? Probably. In uh, England, they're chavs. Chavs, right. Um, in Australia, lad's basically a word for a chav. Um, what advice would I give people who, I feel like we've covered this a little bit on the show before as well, but actually Jamie Smith, again, I'm going to refer to him, wrote a really good article, not article, really good post, I think yesterday about how powerlifting coaching is not that different from just competent personal training generally. So somebody who's just putting their foot in the door as a powerlifting coach, I would say develop a broad base of general personal training and, um, and exercise prescription skills. So you don't have to just work with powerlifters. You can work with general population. You can work with people who are interested in bodybuilding or who are interested in getting better for sport because there's a whole lot of transferable skills there. I would say train for powerlifting yourself and be a be an introspective and vigilant trainer. Ideally, have training partners that can critique you and that you can watch and critique yourself. Um, attend some competitions, compete in some competitions, shadow other coaches, so see how they communicate, how they program read widely about powerlifting programming and where you can don't just read the program and take it as gospel read people's reasoning for the programs and see where see where 
different coaches who are smart guys have come to different solutions for the same problems or have for the same reasons chosen to do different things and realize how much flexibility you can have in programming and then just start doing some just have a go at powerlifting coaching and chances are if it's your first time around the block doing it you're not going to have you know bloody ray williams knocking on your door saying like please coach me you're going to have a few people who are pretty participational lifters but who know you the person and trust you who want you to help them and that's a really good way to just you know get working with your training wheels on so just have a go basically and be an enthusiast alex yeah i think um jamie touched on some really good points there if you understand the body you understand programming you understand biomechanics and how the body and biomechanics relate to each other if you understand how to get someone strong in general um if you understand how to coach good technique those things are the basis for helping people succeed in powerlifting but then there are more skills that you only learn when you experience them in competitions right Mm. stuff like you know changing a deadlift attempt for the win something that you wouldn't learn until you were thrown in that situation stuff like teaching showing someone how to set their rack heights before a competition and just little things like that that you pick up along the way and along the journey um that make you like a quote-unquote powerlifting coach versus just a a strength coach yeah sure but i don't think you need to know them the first time you do it no you don't that just comes with with experience like like you mentioned my first time coaching I didn't know I didn't know what I was doing. I'd done one I'd done one comp myself. Mm. I knew how to improve someone's performance, but I didn't know all the little things that were where to help them like specifically with the comp day. Yeah. Like chalking your back on squats and shit like that. Sure. Just like things that you take for granted now. Yeah, but there's no there's no job in the world that people actually come into with perfect knowledge. Of course you know, not. Even fucking doctors in hospitals are in there learning on the job right so like i'm agreeing with you will yeah i know i'm just saying to the listeners don't be daunted by the fact you won't know it um the post that we're referring to so j.smith.culture the picture is of the two coaches from strength culture jamie and charlie charlie's got a backwards hat jamie's looking staunchly off into the distance and the caption starts with powerlifting coaching has been the topic of conversation with about 20 percent of the applicants of the coach development program so if you find that one, you can read it. It's a good post. Um, next question. Next question. Um, how to determine the individual's strongest foot position slash toe angle in the squat? And this is from Chris Southall. I'm not convinced that this needs deep thought, to be honest. I think, like, some people are kind of motor morons and don't know what they're doing, but most people basically start to regress towards the comfortable and strong squat position and certainly when i get people the first time or two they squat with me i'll sometimes say hey what happens when you turn your toes out a little or turn your toes in a little just based on intuition and how they're squatting and all that stuff but for the most part like if somebody came to me and they've been squatting for four years and they're you know pretty competent they squat like one and a half or double their body weight chances are their toe position as it is is probably the one that's comfortable and strong for them so so i don't really fix i don't really fix that i just i just let people squat in the way that's comfortable for them alex yeah i think comfort is a big thing but i think we can get some indications when we look at someone from front on a front angle front on angle we want we want we want some sort of an alignment between the feet the knees and the hips mm-hmm 
And if we do not have that alignment and it is way, way, way off, chances are it probably won't feel good. And, you know, they won't be doing it that way in the first place. But like Will said, when he f- when you first get someone in the gym and they've never done a squat before, you're going to have to uh, like try a few things and see what, A, what looks aligned. So whether you have that straight alignment between the knee, the ankle and the hips and um, what is comfortable to them. So I guess those two things. Yeah, I think like the most common thing that will happen to me if somebody comes to me and hasn't had powerlifting coaching, sometimes they'll be standing there and their stance will be a little bit too narrow and their toes will be a little bit too far forward. And you'll see they're just like struggling for space in their hips and they don't have like the internal rotation to squat down properly. And so their back will start to round and they'll look like they're tipping forward. And so often with them, I'll say, hey, what happens if you point your toes out a little bit and maybe widen your feet an inch or two? And if it looks a little bit better like that, then usually they'll start to actually from just that clue alone go, oh, it feels better if I go an inch wider again or here feels a lot better and wider doesn't feel much better and they stick there. But very rarely would somebody come to me if somebody's walking in and they've got like, yeah, you know, their toes pointing out at two o'clock on the clock and their feet one and a half times shoulder width apart and they're squatting quite comfortably. Very rarely would I be like, better fix that, you know? And with the same... With the same instance, you might get someone come in and they've been watching West Side videos. Yeah. And they go super duper wide box squat styles. Yeah. And their knees cave in and their back starts around because they don't have any uh, mobility in external rotation through the hips. You're going to obviously bring them in. Yeah, of course. And those are those things are quite glaringly obvious when you see them. And like you said at the start of this answer, doesn't really require much thought because it's really obvious. Yeah. You'll if you are an experienced coach or even if you've just seen a lot of powerlifting, you should know pretty quickly what to change yeah um southall gain says rpe versus other methods of programming for clients with very fatiguing jobs so i've already said at length just before that i think rpe serves a lot or i should say auto regulation it's not the same thing as rpe but auto regulated training serves a lot of purposes really well um and using rpe is a form of auto regulation for clients with very fatiguing jobs, to me, it makes a lot of sense because, again, going back to our answer to Potsy about um, about how fatigue can be a little bit unpredictable and doesn't necessarily mean you're doing anything wrong, when you have somebody who has large fluctuations or large amounts in general of lifestyle stress and activity, be that from their job or from other sporting commitments or you know family stuff, probably being able to accommodate that in training is good. So if if somebody comes in with a, if somebody has a very fatiguing job and really when I'm writing a program what I want is training to be roughly a given difficulty then being able to say to them hey make sure your training is roughly this hard using RPE or an auto regulation approach is probably better than me just saying do five at 80% when some days that might be nearly impossible and other days it might actually be really easy Alex yeah I'm going to attack this from a different angle and Go. I think if someone has a really fatiguing job, I think it's important to uh, to write their training program such that they are performing their harder sessions when they're not having hard days at work. So I think if, you know, in a general four-day week program, if someone works like a laboring job, 7 a.m. to 4 p.m., Monday to Friday, what you might do is put their two harder sessions of the week on the weekend and then give them their two lighter sessions during the week while they're while they're at work. And you know, whether you use auto regulation or prescribed loads for those sessions, 
you know, you can get great results using both. But I think that's probably the first thing that I would look at with dealing with someone with like a heavy laboring job. Yeah, 100%. I think that's very valid and clever. Next question. Uh, from Jules Nanetti. What is better, NRL or AFL? Okay. Um, Non-Aussie listeners, NRL is the National Rugby League. So if you're non-Australian, you probably also don't know the difference between Rugby League and Rugby Union. Rugby it's League... the dumb version of Rugby Union. <laughs> yeah, it's the... Rugby League is the less tactically complicated version of Rugby Union where you play it and then you sink VBs and beat up women and stuff. <laughs> um, fuck, that was pretty rogue. But seriously... I, I wish that wasn't true. Yeah. Um, jokes aside, Rugby League's a good game with a bad reputation. Um, but the NRL is a really good sporting competition. Um, then... AFL is Australian football, which is like you still kick an egg-shaped object and you try and kick it between four posts at the other end on a big field and everybody wears really short shorts and a singlet. Um, More popular in Victoria, whereas rugby league's more popular in New South Wales and Queensland. I don't love either, but I probably prefer the NRL. And the reason is that rugby union, the gentleman's game played by legends... Played by private school boys, like Will. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, um, because rugby union is, like, my favourite sport and rugby league is a pale, pale shadow of rugby union but is still a shadow of rugby union, whereas AFL I just don't really enjoy as much as a a sport. Alex? This is a tough one for me because I love all sports. Yep. I'm from Adelaide. Yep. Which is... AFL, we don't even have an NRL team in Adelaide. We have two AFL teams in Adelaide. Port Adelaide as well, Will. Right, okay, got it. <laughs> like, what's the second one? Um, So, I grew up with my dad always watching AFL, trying to get me to play AFL. I played a little bit in high school, but I played rugby union and basketball mostly. So, as a kid, grew up watching lots of AFL, but I've lived in Sydney since I was six. So, you know, like Will said, rugby is the predominant sport in Sydney and I've followed rugby league since I was about 15. So I actually prefer to watch rugby league, especially on TV. Going to the game, I prefer AFL. I support rugby league more closely. You're very on the fence with this answer. NRL, slight edge. 60-40 NRL. I actually do think what you said about going to the game at AFL is important. I've been to a couple of AFL games, and in person, it's a really good game. It's much more impressive in person than on TV, when you see how much running they do. Yeah, if you don't understand AFL, it's played on big fields, like really big. Cricket fields. Yeah. So the ball covers a lot of distance, and what you don't realize watching it on TV, or what I struggle to follow watching on TV, is how much structure and stuff there is in where people are positioned around the field and how people are working for space and like how much distance the ball covers and stuff. Um, it's, a, it's a much more complicated and interesting game when you can actually take in the whole field. You just don't see it on television. On television, you basically see the ball and like 20 metres around it and you almost lose the scope of it. Whereas rugby league, that's much less important. Um, so yeah, true. Anyway, rugby league. Final question, I believe. This one's by Rish Dot, Arish Severi. Oh yeah, the the screenshot one. Um, he he says, how would you include clean and jerk in powerlifting training program, 
And other than being non-specific, what disadvantages could it have on program design? Alex. Now, I know very little about weightlifting. I reckon you should be as definitive and, <laughs> and certain as possible in spite of that. I honestly have no idea. What, what do you think, Will? So the questions are, what disadvantages could it have? How would I include it? And what disadvantages would it have on program design? How would I include it? Okay. I don't think clean and jerks would make sense to do after hard deadlifts because like first things first the deadlift pattern and the clean pattern are actually not as similar as you would expect um cleans you need to put your shoulders a little bit further ahead of the bar have a lot more knee break sit lower um try and lead with your chest up more it's it's really different to how we deadlift where when we deadlift we have higher hips knees back we don't have our scapulae retracted at all. We don't have thoracic extension. We have thoracic flexion. All those things are really different. So I think putting them right next to each other is probably going to cause a little bit of interference um, from a motor learning perspective. And were you to have done heavy deadlifts prior to your cleans, your clean performance would suffer enormously. In general, like in principle, I think probably doing cleans early in your session makes the most sense because they're more of an explosive movement. And so when you're fatigued, your ability to actually do the explosive movement is going to suffer. But if you're not going to do them prior to your deadlifting, then I guess the only other time that would be smart to do them would be prior to your squatting, um, which I guess you could do. But then you're starting to trade off on your squatting to incorporate a clean and jerk. So maybe the best compromise for mine and i'm not sure how good of a compromise this would be maybe the best compromise would be after your light squat day to do some cleans or prior to your light squat day to do some cleans so say your weekly layout was something like well actually there's two ways you could do this say your weekly layout was monday heavy squats moderate bench tuesday light um light bench light deadlifts and some leg accessories thursday light or moderate squats hard bench possibly on that day prior to your squats you could do some cleans and then your friday or saturday session might be a heavy deadlifts the alternative might be to put in your cleans in place of your light deadlifts on your day two in that layout so heavy squats and hardish bench on day one easy bench cleans on day two um but yeah the disadvantages basically that it's going to interfere with deadlift patterning if you do it prior to squatting, it might to some degree interfere with your squatting. Um, it's challenging and time-consuming. It's not enormously specific to powerlifting. We've already said that. Um, and it might displace work that is more specific to powerlifting. Other than that, I don't think it's that big of a deal. If you want to do some cleans, I guess you can. Um, and there are some people who I think have written about extensively training for a super total. I think Juggernaut released a book about that. Is that correct, Alex? Correct. Yeah. So if you wanted an answer that wasn't shit, that's where I'd go. But but that's my feeling is I'd basically try and position it as far away from things that's going to interfere with much as I could. I think my basic idea would be to reduce total um, squat and deadlift volume by a little bit and replace it with clean volume. Um, but where you, where you put it in the workout, I'm not too sure. Um, 
in that example you gave, I would probably put it before heavy bench on that day two. Yeah, so you do your lighter bench on day one. That would make sense as well, yeah. Um, and yeah, maybe even just take out one of the squat or one of the deadlift sessions and replace it. But See, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't have much experience with weightlifting stuff. Here's the thing though. Um, like, so I squat north of 250 kilos, 251. <laughs> um, Beat me to it. Yeah. But like, as in I squat north of 250 kilos, I can probably clean like 130 to 140, right? Like, and that's as in if I actually trained cleans for a little bit, I can clean 130, 140. When I did weightlifting, albeit briefly, my best ever clean was 140 and it was like deathly hard. So the amount of actual leg stimulus or even back stimulus I'm going to get from doing cleans as compared to training squats or doing some front squats even or training deadlifts is not that much. So there's like that's that is an important trade-off if you say like you're going to reduce your squat volume to accommodate cleans you're you're reducing something that's a really potent leg training stimulus for something that's not um and possibly a little bit unnecessarily as well i don't think i don't think cleans are that enormously fatiguing i think they're a little bit acutely fatiguing like i think if you did some hard cleans immediately prior to hard squats you definitely feel it squatting but i think if you did some hard cleans the day before hard squats i don't think it would knock you about anywhere near as much does that make sense yeah, that does. Um, I actually have a client who does two weightlifting sessions a week. Yep. Not written by me, thankfully for her. Um, but she does them on separate days to her powerlifting training. Yep. So, like, sh- I haven't had to reduce any of her powerlifting volume, um, which is good. So, I guess they haven't interfered too much. Mm. But the amount of stuff that she does in weightlifting obviously isn't what she would do if she only did weightlifting. Yep. Like, she would probably be doing three times as much total work if she did no powerlifting training so I don't know it's hard to say like how I would go about doing it she has a weightlifting coach to do it for her I guess alright that's a wrap on the Q&A we're going to take a very quick break and come back with underrated overrated properly rated give him some cowbell Alex welcome back to episode 90 we're going to do overrated underrated properly rated which is, is it overrated, underrated, or underrated, overrated? I overrated, mean, underrated. Or I say it rated. backwards every time. Okay. It doesn't really matter. It's the same okay. thing. Sure. Um, this is my favorite segment. And I'm a little bit excited. We haven't had a guest. We haven't had a guest-free episode in a while. Yeah. I feel like we should start doing it with our guests too. I feel like it's something they would get around. Yeah, but I think repeat guests have to do it. And otherwise, they get the four questions. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Um, do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? You go first. All right. Overrated, underrated, or properly rated, grilled burgers. Oh, that's actually a good one. You did say it wasn't training related. No, that was one that was more training related than the other one. <laughs> that's extremely not. The other one was related. so stupid. I reckon they're properly rated, um, because like grilled. I think grilled burgers are actually good. I I don't see anybody hyping them as like the best thing of all time. Were they too, I would say they're incorrect because like they're not life-changing, but they're definitely good. I'm always happy to have one. Um, I also don't think they fly under the radar. I don't see many people saying grilled sucks and I don't see many people 
plainly underappreciating how good they are. I think they're just a good wholesome burger. What do you think? I I really agree with you. Grill burgers are great. They've got a really good menu. Mm-hmm. Lots of variety. Yep. You can get veggie burgers. You can get low carb bun. You can get. How often do you get a veggie low carb burger? Zero times total. <laughs> yep. Go on. <laughs> um, yeah, they've got lots of options, but they're not the best burgers you can get. Like they're not like like a real filthy greasy burger, but they they are. You get what you're given with grilled. Yeah, I was going to say they have a very consistent brand and they're exactly what you said. They're not a greasy yeah. burger. They're a burger for when you don't want to feel unhealthy, but you do feel like a burger. But you can get, you can go the slightly greasier route if you go like the beef and bacon. Yeah. Beef, bacon and cheese or whatever one. Yeah. Versus like just a normal ch- chicken burger. Yeah, but it still doesn't come on a brioche bun or anything. It's like... Yeah, exactly. So like there is the opportunity to have something a little bit more like burgery. Bit cheeky. Yeah. Um, so I would say properly rated because they're not like raved about like Baluka is, which is overrated by the way. Agreed. Um, and they're not like, no one slanders grilled either. The only thing that's overrated about grilled is the price point. Yeah. They're pricing. They're pretty expensive. A little bit expensive, but they're properly rated. All right. Overrated, underrated or properly rated. IPF points. Um, I think properly rated because there hasn't been like a huge outpouring about them. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people still use the Wilkes, five, old 500 Wilkes benchmark as like the when you're good um, or really good. Um, there hasn't, like I don't even know what the equivalent to 500 is. For the IPF points. So, it's not quite the same. Um, I can't... Can you explain exactly how the Wilkes points were calculated? They're basically... Well, in the 80s, it was based off single-ply equipped lifting in the IPF. Mm-hmm. Um, they gathered all the data that they had and tried to find a, a mark where in different weight classes, they were relatively equal in terms of performance quality. Yeah. So... That's roughly close. The IPF points are conceptually a little bit different. I I hope I get the numbers correct, but I think 500 in the IPF points represents the median total for a given body weight, right? And then for every standard deviation either side, or it must be either side of the mean. So 500 represents the media, um, the mean performance, then for each standard deviation, either side you get, you either add or subtract 100 points. So if the average person who weighs 90 kilos totals 500 and one, one standard deviation above average is a 575 total and two standard deviations above is a 650 total or something, then 650 would get you like 700 IPF points, right? And so the idea, the idea is that it, it makes it easier for you to compare how your performance sits relative to the average person of your weight. Um, which that actually is in some ways an improvement conceptually on the Wilkes score. The Wilkes score to a degree lets me say how good am I compared to this person in this other weight class, but it doesn't actually tell you how good you are relative to the average. Well, I think you just have to conceptualize what you consider the average to be. Like whether... The average is like 
you know, 300 across the board or something like that. Mm. Um, but Wilkes has updated the formula anyway. Yeah. So there's a new, for those who, those who don't know, there's a new formula um, this year in 2020 um, where he has collected the like all the data in the last however many years. I don't actually know. Um, and sort of tried to even up the disparity that it had in the old one yep. where the old one sort of favoured the lighter women. It was really harsh on heavier women, favoured heavier men a lot. Um, so I guess if you were somewhere in the middle, like, you know, probably between 80 and 90 kilos for the men and probably between 60 and 70 kilos for the females, um, you were a little bit hard done by on the old Wilkes formula, whereas now it's a lot more even across the board. Mm. Um, although the old 500 Wilkes is now 600 Wilkes. So like, that's like the new benchmark for being really elite is the 600, is 600 Wilkes points. Right. So, uh, is the IPF points overrated, underrated, probably rated? Probably properly rated. I haven't really seen anyone raving about it, but I haven't really seen anyone slandering it either. Um, what I do find hard to conceptualize with the IPF points is um, comparing, if you are giving a best lifter award in a competition, you're only comparing them against lifters in their weight class. So you're saying how much better were they than everyone else in their weight class versus how much better were they than everyone else in the whole competition. So yeah. I don't know if that's a really fair way to go about giving a best lifter award. Whereas I think the older Wilkes formula is probably a better way to give a best lifter award. Yeah, I actually think that's a kind of reasonable critique. Well, it's not how much better were they than everybody in their weight class at the competition. It's how much better are they than the average performance of anybody in their weight class yeah. over time yeah. generally. But yeah, that does make but does sense. Does that mean that the IPF formula is consistent is changing all the time then and that new the new statistics are like changing the formula I don't know I, I doubt that will be the case but that I guess, should be the case if that's how you're going to go about going, going about using it well also just if there are weight classes say that are like universally less competitive then you could have somebody who's objectively an equal standard lifter to yeah. people from a very competitive weight well, class well yeah if you look at the 84 women um, best in the world is Amanda Lawrence mm. she won best lifter at IPF world last year and she had a an IPF point score like much much higher than any of the males by a long shot mm. whereas in the old Wilkes system it would have been roughly similar to you know what Atwood or Gibbs were doing right okay, well that's interesting because that's sort of the weight class that is I guess not the highest standard yeah or she's just such an outlier for it well, she. Well, I mean, if she's an outlier, then by definition, the average performance. Yeah, is she is. She is incredible. Yeah, but even more incredible than you know, like in the seventy-four classes, saturated with so much talent, they don't stand out as much, so their points won't be as high. Yeah, true. You shouldn't really be. Um, you shouldn't be hindered based on other people in your class also being good. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Interesting your discussion. Should be ri- your, your score should rise as an individual, not irrespective of others in your weight class. It's like the um, the scaling system in high school. Yeah, true. Where you like lose points if your class you, you gain, you you gain points if your school does better and shit like that. Yeah. Hmm. Lost to ponder. All right. That's been Weekly Weights, episode 90. Um, I'm Will at W.BerkmanPT. 
I'm Alex at Alex Hayes underscore process. And we'll talk to you guys next week.